Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hi, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum covering the 2nd through 8th of September. Today we'll be discussing the final three chapters of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, I did get a little bit uh, of feedback, uh, questions from people about what the situation in Hong Kong is like. As you know, I've uh, lived in Hong Kong for almost 10 years, certainly have made this a home for me and my family, and this uh, a city that is near and dear to my heart. And there's been a lot of turmoil lately. Um, Yesterday, for the second Sunday in three weeks, uh, we only had one hour of church, and uh, our leaders moved that up from our normal 10 o'clock to 9.30 so that uh, members could could get uh, could come and uh, worship and then leave as early as possible to get home ahead of any ahead of the protests that were planned for that day and there has been a lot of protests this weekend it was uh, quite a difficult weekend with a lot of uh, areas of the city shut down uh, a lot of fires uh, being started by protesters um, still not clear who exactly is. Uh, the ones starting these fires on which side of the argument between uh, the local Hong Kongers who are trying to protect Hong Kong's freedom and uh, the government who is kind of stuck in the middle between uh, those in Beijing that uh, in mainland China that will eventually uh, be, be ruling Hong Kong and they certainly have a lot of say over it now. Um, but it's, it's, the government's in a very difficult position being stuck between you know, the local Hong Kong citizens of which they're a part as well as uh, Beijing, who they're in some ways uh, obligated to listen to. And in 2047, about 30 years from now, Hong Kong will go back to China uh, completely uh, as part of their basic law, part of the agreement with, uh, with England when, when Hong Kong became part of China again. So it's a very difficult situation. Um, we've chosen to stay in our apartments pretty much all weekend just to make sure that we avoid any uh, areas where violence might uh, happen trying to trying to stay safe um, generally not not a lot of problems it's it's pretty easy to avoid those situations but uh, if you feel inclined please do keep Hong Kong in your prayers it's a it's a beautiful it's a unique city uh, and and uh, we're certainly praying that everything resolves uh, itself uh, peacefully and, and for um, the betterment of everyone um, and and I, and I do personally think I've I've been a China watcher for a long time, and I will just say, um, I, I have no doubt that one day the gospel will be open in China. Uh, China's, you know, my second home. I love that beautiful country, and I so look forward to the day when I'll have the chance to freely share the gospel with my brothers and sisters in China. And you know, it's it's very possible that these uh, protests and the events that are going on on right now could be. Uh, the start of opening further some doors within China. And there are already a lot of doors that, that are open. There's, there's a number of 
local branches in China. There's a, you know, several thousand members throughout China, local members that are doing very, very well. It's been a little bit of a struggle the past few years, um, but generally speaking, the church is actually doing okay within mainland China. Uh, but certainly, we, we hope that that door continues to open further, and, uh, and we'll see. Maybe this will be Maybe this will be a part of that in some way. Never, never, never know how the Lord, how the Lord works, and how He, uh, what, what events He uses to to bring about um, His plans and His works. And that's kind of a part of uh, today's lesson as well. This idea of uh, of trusting the Lord, uh, having faith that everything will work out uh, for our benefit. Um, so the the beginning chapters of the book of Corinthians and we've uh, first Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians and we've already covered 13 of those chapters if you recall uh, this epistle started because uh, it was a Paul's response to a letter that he had received uh, from a sister in the branch uh, detailing to Paul some of the uh, some of the some of her concerns some of the unfortunate things that were happening there was a lot of contentions uh, within this branch apparently and a big reason for those contentions was that uh, there was a lot of different philosophies that were entering uh, into the branch that people were bringing in. They were trying to uh, philosophize the gospel in some ways. Um, and, and as they were doing so, most importantly, they were leaving behind the core doctrine of Jesus Christ. And we'll see here there were even those in the branch that had left behind the core doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is uh, his death and his resurrection, and, and uh, that the promise for all of us which that resurrection holds. And, and so, as this branch had brought in their own philosophies and left behind the core doctrines and teachings of Jesus Christ, not surprisingly, this had caused uh, some major problems in the branch. And if you recall last week, uh, we learned that Paul's prescription to this was to have charity towards each other, to love each other, to put other people's needs ahead of your own needs and ahead of your own desires, uh, to make sure that everyone within the branch has their own spiritual needs yet met, that no one is left behind, and that everyone has the chance to come to the branch and to feel edified. That's a word Paul uses over and over, especially in chapter 14, we'll see, to making sure everyone feels edified and is able to and the branch is a place for them to, to grow and to draw, draw closer to Christ. Um, Paul says we have to have charity because we need each other in order for the church to become the body of Christ. If you recall, he used this beautiful metaphor where the church is the body of Christ. And today as we talk about uh, the resurrection and, and bodies and what that means, uh, it's very, very interesting to think of this analogy of the church being the body of Christ, given that the resurrection is when Christ's spirit came back into his mortal body, and then after several days, he then again ascended up to the Father, leaving his church behind to be his body. And of course, a body is an instrument through which we are able to carry out our will on the earth, whether it be you know, our own physical bodies, or in Christ's case, the church. The church is Christ's instrument through which he carries out his will on earth, through which he, which of course in his will is that he might provide salvation to the sons and daughters of God. And the church is the body through which that happens, through which he carries that out. And of course that requires uh, priesthood, priesthood power, and the ability to 
uh, participate and provide saving ordinances to God's children. And then, of course, there's also a huge component of service and caring for those that are struggling and, and providing the charity uh, that Paul uses as his prescription to the church so that it might become the body of Christ as well. And so it's interesting to think of the church being the body of Christ and then put that in the context of the resurrection, what we all uh, ascribe to become. And so if we are going to become like Christ, who is the embodiment of charity, we need charity in order to strengthen that body of Christ. So a lot of uh, interesting ideas and coming together here and the idea of charity and the church and the resurrection all focused around uh, Jesus Christ. And so those are some of the ideas that we'll, be, that we'll be working through today. Chapter 14, uh, he begins his discussion. And remember, in 13, he had just given this beautiful description of what charity means and provided us uh, context as to why charity is so important, teaching us that no matter what we do in this world, if we don't do it with charity, we might as well not even do it. We have to do the right things with the right intentions in order to gain the growth and the fulfillment and the blessings that God intends for us to obtain. And charity is critical for that. So in chapter 14, verse 1, he begins, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. So the, he teaches that the reason that he, the reason that we do this is so that we can, we can prophesy. The, the, the Wayment translation, again, I, I, this uh, recently came out, a uh, translation done by a BYU scholar, Thomas Wayment. Um, it's a very recent translation of the New Testament, and I've, I've personally used it a lot to help understand some scriptures that aren't clear. And in here, he translates verse 1 as, Pursue charity and seek for spiritual gifts, especially so that you may prophesy. Interesting. He tells us that we're supposed to go after charity and spiritual gifts in order for us to prophesy. Uh, prophesy. It's a very interesting word, this idea that we are to be prophets and we are to prophesy. And in verse, th in verse 3 of chapter 14, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So the, this idea of prophecy here, I think it's a little bit more than just the idea of we're, we're predicting the future. We're prophesying what's going to happen next. Because prophecy, according to Paul in verse 3, is supposed to provide edification and exhortation and comfort to us. Now, what type of prophecy does that? What could we possibly talk about going to happen in the future that would provide edification, exhortation, and comfort? Well, if we go to uh, the guide to the scriptures, here they provide an interesting definition of what prophecy means. It says, a prophecy consists of divinely inspired words or writings, which a person receives through revelation from the Holy Ghost. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A prophecy may pertain to the past, present, or future. When a person prophesies, he speaks or writes that which God wants him to know for his own good or the good of others. Individuals may receive prophecy or revelation for their own lives. 
So here, in the guide to the scriptures that the, the church provides to us to help us better understand different words within the, within the scriptures, prophecy is almost synonymous with, with personal revelation. Of course, I love the Revelation's definition of prophecy, which says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this idea that it's revelation, it's Christ-focused, prophecy is Christ-focused revelation. You could almost say it's our testimonies. It's us speaking about Christ and providing uh, and sharing with others the revelations that we've received about Christ, our testimony, our knowledge of him and his divine mission. Um, yesterday, I uh, did a little experiment uh, during sacrament meeting. Um, I felt impressed. I, I stood up and uh, bore my testimony, and I began by saying, Today, brothers and sisters, I'm going to prophesy to you. And uh, the congregation, you could see, got a little bit nervous, but I proceeded to not uh, predict the future as we are used to thinking of prophesying, but rather I simply bore my testimony of Christ and my witness that no matter what happens, because of Christ, we can be certain that our future will be sure. Our future, everything will work out in the future li like it is supposed to. And that's what spirit of prophecy does for us. It is a testimony of Christ, and it lets us know that the future will be okay, no matter what happens. And, and, and the reason I did that in sacrament was because I myself was feeling uncertain about my own future as an expat living in Hong Kong and seeing the chaos and the disruption that's taking place, thinking about what's best for my family. I was feeling uneasy about the future. And as I studied these ideas about prophecy and what that truly means, it brought a lot of peace to me, knowing that because I have faith in Christ, no matter what happens in Hong Kong, no matter what happens to my job, no, whatever, no matter what happens to my family members or to my own health or whatever problem might come, we have faith in Christ that because of him, everything will work out okay. And we know that. We know that our future is bright and our promises are assured through Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice and through our faith and our relationship uh, in and with him. We can have that certainty. We can know that the, what the future will bring. And that is what it means to prophesy, according to Paul. That's what it means to, to have that spirit of prophecy, that testimony of Christ, that sure knowledge that everything will work out okay. And that's what Paul is exhorting them Paul is trying to tell them the reason we have these spiritual gifts, the reason we have charity, the reason we have this church is so that we can be certain, we can be secure in our witness, in our understanding, in our faith in Christ that everything will work out okay. So we don't need to worry about that little, about the little stuff. We can use our time to better ourselves, to help other people, to serve others, and to build and edify the Church of Christ. We don't need to be worrying about these other things, certainly not the philosophies of the world that the branch in Corinth was struggling with. We don't need to worry about those things. Certainly they're interesting to study and to understand, and we talked about how it can be important so that we can relate to others as well, but we don't need to worry about them because we can prophesy, because we know that everything will work out through our faith in Jesus Christ.
verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you, except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? So Paul is contrasting the idea of prophecy, the sure testimony of Christ and the knowledge that everything will work out okay on one hand, and the gift of tongues. Apparently in this branch, there had been a lot of people that were speaking uh, in tongues, that were communicating uh, noises, if you will, to other members of the branch that were not understandable. Um, then verses 9 and 12, and for this I want to use the Wayment uh, translation because I think it makes it uh, more clear in what, he, in what Paul is saying here. So it is with you. If, if with your tongue you do not speak in a way that is easily understood, how will anyone know what is being said? For you are speaking into the air. There are likely many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So it is with you, because you are eager for the things of the Spirit, seek to abound in building up the church. So Paul is saying here, if you're going to come and you're going to speak in a language that people don't understand, what's the point? If you're going to build up the church, if you're going to speak and prophesy and uh, share with others those things that the Lord has revealed to you, do so in a way that they can understand, that others will be edified. Well, let me share with you a, prophet, a quote from the prophet Joseph Smith. If you have a matter to reveal, let it be in your own tongue. Do not indulge too much in the exercise of the gift of tongues, or the devil will take advantage of the innocent and unwary. You may speak in tongues for your own comfort, but I lay this down for a rule, that if anything is taught by the gift of tongues, it is not to be received by doctrine. So here the prophet Joseph Smith tells us that we are to be careful of the gift of tongues. So back to the question, what does that mean for our day? Well, it's, I personally have never been involved in a sacrament in which someone has stood up and spoken in a language that nobody there understood. And here we're not talking about foreign languages. Paul used that kind of as a reference. And he said, if I came to you speaking a foreign language, you wouldn't understand that. That wouldn't benefit you at all. So it is with the gift of tongues. If people stand up and speak uh, some gibberish, then nobody understands. It doesn't bless anyone. It doesn't help anyone, but I've never seen that in the church. I think largely we've, uh, in part because of, because of our modern sensitivities and our you know feelings in a modern world, we don't we don't we are not exposed to that as much anymore. I understand it does happen from time to time in other places of the world. It might be more prevalent, but we don't see that as much. Usually, what we would see is people speaking in language that others do not understand. And what I'm talking about here is those using big words, flowery expressions that really sound beautiful, but might be hollow, that might be horribly complex. Maybe they're scientific or deeply philosophical, but when it comes to edifying people and helping people draw closer to Christ, they don't do anything. They're hollow, they're shallow. They're without spiritual calories, if you will. They do not provide the benefit. And so why would someone do that? Well, they might do so for their own personal edification, to make other people around them uh, think that they are smart, think that they are speaking in a way that is so advanced that others can't understand them. <clears throat> but that doesn't help. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be teaching the clear doctrine of Jesus Christ and sharing our testimonies in a way that is understandable to others. And so 
We don't speak in a way that's intended to make us look smart. If no one else understands it, it is better to simply prophesy. And that is what Paul is telling us. It is better to share the things that the Lord has revealed to us, our testimony of Christ, because that is what edifies and that is what builds this body of Christ, focusing on the testimony of Christ. And of course, this is an important teaching for the members in the Corinth branch, given that many of them had brought in different philosophies into the church and were teaching things that were not focused on Christ and were hard to understand, whether it be in a, in a gibberish uh, tongue that nobody literally understood or whether they were using big flowery words that did not necessarily relate and were not helpful uh, to helping others gain an understanding of Jesus Christ. Um, so we need to stick in our teaching uh, to our firm testimony of the Savior so that others might be edified. Verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And this just further hammers home this idea that God does not provide confusion. And actually like the Wayment translation here, where it says, God is not a contributor to confusion, but the author of peace. So God is not only not the originator of confusion, but he doesn't even contribute to that confusion. He doesn't do things that might make people be confused. He is the author of peace. And it's interesting to contradict confusion on the one hand with peace on the other. Because when we testify of Christ, we bring peace. We help others feel the peace that comes from Christ, that comes from that sure knowledge that he is our Savior and that everything will work out okay. And that is the peace that the gospel brings, that sure knowledge that in the end everything will work out like it's supposed to. Not the confusion that takes place in the world here. God is not only not the author of it, he doesn't even contribute to it, to that confusion. Christ, in an understanding of him and his doctrine, brings peace. And before we talk about the doctrine that brings the greatest peace, I do want to quickly discuss verses 34 and 35 because they are um, certainly contradict, uh, they are certainly controversial um, and open to uh, difficult interpretations, shall we say, uh, where it uh, expounds us to let women keep silent in churches for it is not permitted for them to speak but they are commanded to be under obedience. Um, And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, I will just say, I'm not going to begin to say that I understand exactly why these verses are here or what exactly they mean. The GST changes the idea of uh, of speak to rule, the idea that do not let women uh, rule in your churches, um, so that certainly softens it, but even now, that's, that's still kind of a hard doctrine for us to understand given our <clears throat> modern sensitivities and our uh, requests for, uh, and our understanding of the importance of, uh, of equality. So I'm not going to at all try to, try to justify these verses, but I will say that uh, it, it is certainly, these verses are inconsistent uh, with Paul's other teachings. Now, last week we talked about how Paul said it's uh, important for women to pray in church and for it's in, women's presence is essential for neither is the man without the woman or the woman without the man. 
And that was you know, not only a reference to marriage we talked about, but also within the church. Men and women are both essential for the church. And this letter itself is addressed to a faithful woman named Chloe in the church. Now, was Chloe supposed to simply hand it over to her husband and let her run with it? Why wouldn't have Paul just written to the husband directly? Um, certainly, Paul uh, recognized the importance of women, and, and they were critical to the church. And many of his salutations as he closes his letters are addressed to women, to faithful women, that he cares for deeply and clearly have an essential role uh, in the early church. So these letters, so these few verses seem to be very inconsistent with much of uh, <clears throat> Paul's other actions. I don't know why they're there. I don't know why they're in there. I don't know what they mean exactly. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things I'm not going to get too hung up on um, because, again, it's inconsistent with Paul's prior practice. And, and certainly, you know, we as a church have, have generally uh, moved on from that. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly recognize the, the critical nature that women play uh, in the church as in both uh, teaching and preaching and leading. Um, and so I'm grateful to be part of it, uh, to, to live in a time in which uh, those, uh, those things are recognized. Now let's move on to chapter 15. Um, because this is uh, Paul's testimony of the resurrection. He really hits home the resurrection here more than any other place in the scriptures um, and teaches us some beautiful truths about this. And it is this doctrine of the resurrection that provides the greatest peace possible. We talked in chapter 14 about how uh, to prophesy means to share our testimony of Christ. And God is the author of peace, not a contributor to confusion. And certainly the greatest peace comes from understanding the doctrine of the resurrection. But there apparently were those in the branch that did not understand the resurrection. In verse 12 it says, uh, There are some among you that, uh, that, there is, that say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Uh, it's almost incredible that there's those within the branch that did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, and Paul says, this is despite that you have so many witnesses around you, including Paul himself, who's a personal witness of the resurrected Lord. And there were those who, uh, within the church who had witnessed the resurrected Christ um, during the 40 days that he ministered. Uh, so they have eyewitnesses to them of the Lord's resurrection. But yet there were those within the branch that did not believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. And so that is what Paul wants to address here. And certainly of all the philosophizing that takes place, of all the outside ideas that we, in, that we bring into the church, the idea that the resurrection can in some other way be explained away and is therefore not real is it's hard to think of a more uh, damning in the true sense of the word uh, and that it stops our progress. It's hard to think of a more damning uh, philosophy than this idea that the resurrection is not real. So and on the contrast, of course, it's, an, it's hard to think of a more peace-bringing, a more wonderful doctrine than, this, than our understanding and our knowledge that the resurrection is real. And that's what Paul talks about uh, in this chapter, starting in verse 14, 14 and 19. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
we are of all men most miserable. We've talked in previous lessons that hope, the way I like to think of hope, is having uh, a, a faith, a belief in the destination. Faith in Christ is having faith that he will lead us to that destination. But our hope is our belief that the destination exists in the first place. And so Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if our belief in Jesus Christ is only focused on this world, if we're only in the gospel because we are expecting blessings within this life, Paul says, we are of all men most miserable. We are going to be disappointed because that's not where Christ's focus is. That's not the focus of the gospel. Now, obviously, we believe that uh, the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace while we are in this life. And certainly there's uh, much of the gospel being a tool to self-improvement does allow us to enjoy in many ways, greater blessings than we otherwise would in this life, as it teaches us to focus on on, on discipline, um, education, finding happiness within the family. Certainly those things all contribute to uh, having a better life, to being happier here. But Paul says, if this is our focus, if this is the reason we believe in Christ, we're really missing out. We are missing the true value of the gospel. We are not understanding what the gospel has for us. And so if there is no resurrection, if we don't believe in the resurrection, which is our knowledge and our, the, the, the basis of our faith and things to come, then we're missing out on the incredible blessings and the incredible peace that the gospel has to bring us. If we're focused on the things of this world, and not focused on the things of the next world and our understanding that the resurrection is real and that we will be reunited with our bodies and that we will have the opportunity to return to our Father in heaven to enjoy a glory there with him. If we're not recognizing that, then what are we doing? Then we're missing the entire focus of the gospel. We're missing all of the great blessings and the peace that the church has to bring. Uh, Verses 20 through 22. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now enjoy the Wayman translation of uh, verse 21 especially when he teaches for since death well for, for, for he provides the uh, the translation that says for since death came through one person the resurrection from the dead came through one person and it's this idea that we came to this world to for a number of different reasons we came to receive a body we came to enjoy families and we came to have the opportunity to be tested and to grow and improve as we overcome those tests. But we are not meant to stay here forever. This is just a testing ground. We we have to leave this place eventually, and the way in which we are supposed to leave it is through death. And of course, death came 
in the way that Adam brought us here. We all came through Adam as our great parent. He and Eve brought the human family into this world. So death and everything, so this world and all of the struggles and challenges and opportunities and blessings that came through it all came through Adam. But of course, because we came here, we have to be able to leave this world. And that also came through Adam. And Adam, recognizing that it was necessary for us to eventually leave this world, chose to partake of the fruit, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, having been led there by Eve. And as he did so, he introduced death into the world in some way that I'll admit I don't completely understand. And as he did so, he opened, he brought death into the world and made it possible for all of us to not only come to this world, but also to leave this world, which was absolutely critical. But just as it is through one man's actions, through Adam's fall, that we came into this world and that we entered into this world of death, so it is through one man's actions, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and his culminating in his resurrection, that we can overcome death, that we can be resurrected. Um, one of my uh, a, a talk that's uh, in many ways near and dear to me was given by a uh, poli sci professor that I had at uh, Brigham Young University named Valerie Hudson. It's, uh, and her talk is called Two Trees. And in there she talks about how in the Garden of Eden there were two trees. There was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then there was the tree of life. And uh, she beautifully describes how just as there were two trees, there were two people. There was the woman and there was the man. And it was Eve, as she recognized the importance and the value of uh, partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that led us as a human race to that tree. And she led us to all of the blessings and all of the opportunities that are available to us in this earth. And of course, that is why God created it in the first place. He wants us to experience these things. He wants us to have, to taste the bitter and the sweet. He wants us to have a, a whole view, a whole a plethora of different opportunities while we're here so that we have the chance to grow and progress. And it was our wonderful Mother Eve that led us to that tree, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil that made these opportunities possible, but also introduced death into the world. So that was the first tree, and it is the woman that leads us into this world, uh, both uh, figuratively in the Garden of Eden, and also literally, as we of course are each born uh, from a woman, as we actually uh, miraculously um, each enter into the world through the, uh, the amazing, beautiful power uh, that is within women. And then the second tree, the tree of life. And of course, in uh, Father Lehi's dream, the tree of life represents Christ. It represents the love of God. It represents the resurrection. It represents our ability to return to the Father and to be with him, made possible through Jesus Christ. And so just as Eve led us to the first tree, so too does Adam, through his priesthood power, 
through the power of the priest, the power of God that was given to him and the ordinance that were made available to him, so too does Adam lead us to Christ, lead us to the tree of life. But, of course, we have this life that we have to get through first. In the Garden of Eden, God placed cherubim and the flaming sword there to prevent the children of Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life, of the fruit of the tree of life, before we were ready. We had to have this opportunity to repent, to change, to serve God, to accept Jesus Christ, and to enter into covenants with him through the priesthood that God gave to Adam. And so we're given this time that we can prepare ourselves to return to live with God. And an, an essential portion, part of that preparation is we have to leave this earth. And the way that we leave this earth is death. And now death is something that will be um, <clears throat> talking, um, something that's been a lot on, on my mind a lot, certainly. Um, some of you may know that both of my parents passed away rather unexpectedly last year. And it was at that time that I really was the first time in my life that I was confronted with the death of someone that I was really, really close to. And it happened twice within a 16-day period. Verses 25 and 26. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so when my parents died, and as I thought about what that meant... The whole idea that Christ would come and put death under his feet, that he would overcome death, took on a profoundly new meaning to me. Death is the final enemy and that it is the enemy that has ultimate power. When I think of finality here, I don't think of, um, in terms of a timeline, chronological, the final enemy. I think of it as being the ultimate enemy. And that is what death is. It is the ultimate enemy. It's the ultimate power that makes us unhappy. Not only in the sense that, one, it separates us from God. Certainly it does that. But I think equally powerful is this idea that death makes us unhappy because the things that make us happy in this earth are relationship with God and our relationship with others. Death puts both of those things in jeopardy. It is because of death that we are separated from God, both spiritual death and physical death, and we need Christ's atonement to overcome those. But death is also what will ultimately separate us from our loved ones. And how cruel would it be of God to send us here on this earth to develop beautiful and powerful relationships with those within our family as we learn to love others, how cruel would it be for us to come here and develop those relationships and then have death wipe everything away? That is why for me, this idea of eternal families is so basic, so obvious. There must be a way in which these beautiful relationships that God allows us to develop can, uh, can go on forever. Otherwise, death this, this great separation risks sapping all of the joy out of our life. Who would dare to love someone 
if we knew that one day we would be eternally separated from them. In an instant, death takes all the joy and the beauty and the meaning of those relationships and changes it to sorrow, to sadness, to disappointment, to longing. And if there is no way to overcome that sorrow, to overcome that death, that gap, well, how meaningless would our life be? But Christ puts down all enemies, including this ultimate enemy, including death here. As President Hunter said, whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. Christ brings life. And Christ overcomes death. Death being the opposite of life. And the power through which Christ did that was the power of the atonement, which culminated in the resurrection. So if we don't have faith in that resurrection, if we do not believe in Christ's ability to overcome death, what are we doing? How can we trust in Christ? Why would we trust in Christ? Why would we trust in anything? And this is what Paul is ultimately getting to, talking to the current saints and talking to us. The different philosophies we believe in why in the world would we believe in anything or anyone that does not have the power to overcome that final, ultimate enemy, death? That does not have the power to overcome that ultimate source of unhappiness, our separation from God and our separation from others. But Christ provides that. And that is the foundation of our belief in him is that he has power to overcome. He's not just a great moralizer. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just someone who presented beautiful ideas to construct our own life or to construct society. He is so much more than that. And if we do not appreciate all that he teaches us, if we do not appreciate his resurrection and his power to overcome death, we are missing the whole purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is emphasizing here. And that is what each of us have to believe. Sister uh, Oscarson told a beautiful story in April uh, 2016 conference in a talk titled, Do I Believe? She talked about a mother whose son had to be uh, airlifted to a hospital. And she had the chance to ride with him in the helicopter. And she knew that her son was in serious, serious danger. She knew that she might lose him to death. But as she was flying in that helicopter, she flew over several temples there in the Utah Valley. She said of that experience, the thought came into my mind do you believe it or not? I had learned about the blessings of the temple and that families are forever in primary and in young women. I shared the message on families to the good people of Mexico on my mission. I was sealed to my eternal companion for time and all eternity in the temple. I taught lessons about families as a young woman leader, and I shared stories about forever families with my children and family home evening. I knew it. But did I believe it? 
My answer came as quickly as the question popped into my mind. The Spirit confirmed to my heart and mind the answer. I already knew. I did believe it. There is no more powerful doctrine that we believe in as members of the Church of of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as Christians. No more powerful doctrine than the doctrine of the resurrection. Our belief that Christ overcame death through his resurrection. That we can be united with our families forever. That death will be defeated. This great enemy that risks sapping all of our joy separating us eternally from both God and from our loved ones. Christ overcame that. And that is why we have hope in him. That is why we put our faith in him, because of his power to overcome that ultimate enemy, even death. Now, a few verses later, Paul uh, mentions this idea of baptisms for the dead. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Of course, this scripture is, we as Latter-day Saints are unique in our understanding and our appreciation for this scripture because we have temples, and in those temples we perform baptisms for the dead. We understand that the priesthood power is not limited to this earth, but that the holy Melchizedek priesthood allows us to perform and to be baptized on behalf of those who have already died. How powerful is Christ's ability over death? That it even allows those who have gone through death to be baptized vicariously through, for, by those who are still on earth. And of course, this idea of vicarious ordinance should not... Uh, be a surprise to us and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who understands Jesus Christ because he vicariously performed the atonement for us he unlocked the door he conquered death through his resurrection vicariously for us and while each of us will be resurrected individually that atonement was done on our behalf So it shouldn't at all be a surprise that individuals can perform ordinances on behalf of others because Christ has already done that for us. Now, as I was preparing, I I was interested in how other uh, Christian denominations and other Christians understood this verse. And it seems for others, I found several interpretations, which I'll uh, quickly go through here. Um, Some of them admitted that this was something that happened. They said there clearly were certain sects within the church that were um, performing these baptisms on behalf of those that uh, had died. But they rationalized it as Paul was not endorsing uh, this teaching or this practice. He says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? It's, it's other people that are doing it. He's, they say Paul is not endorsing it. Okay, That's one uh, possibility And others say that uh, it's the baptism to the resurrection of the dead. So baptism is symbolic of a death and a resurrection. And certainly we will uh, agree with that. That is part of the beauty of the ordinance of baptism is that it is symbolic of a death and a resurrection. And we talked extensively um, about that as we were uh, discussing Paul's epistle to the Romans. 
Um, so other churches don't quite know how, what to do with this. And certainly this idea that it is a symbolic death, uh, resurrection, uh, sorry, baptisms for the dead, um, baptisms for those of us that uh, receive the resurrection or, or uh, for who uh, baptism is symbolic of a resurrection. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. That can resonate with me. And perhaps that's part of the beauty of this. I mean, certainly that's part of the beauty of the concept of the resurrection and baptisms for the dead is that it increases our faith in the resurrection. And that's what Paul is teaching here is that because people perform baptisms for the dead, that's evidence that there is a resurrection or otherwise why in the world would people be doing it? But again, these other, these other Christians, faithful as they are, they certainly are missing an important element of the resurrection and of the blessings available through Jesus Christ. This idea that even those that have not accepted the Savior in this life will have the opportunity to do so. What a beautiful, what a powerful doctrine that it is, that our understanding that even those that we love that did not have the chance to accept Christ will have the opportunity to do so and receive all of the blessings as they do. Now, Paul continues to teach about uh, the resurrection, and we'll go through uh, some of these final verses uh, rather quickly. Verses uh, 38 through 41. But God giveth it a body as it pleased him, as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. Now certainly we as Latter-day Saints, thanks to the prophet uh, Joseph Smith, we understand these verses to uh, be an accurate uh, description, almost an analogy if you will, of the different kingdoms that await for us after the resurrection. But what Paul is teaching here is that there are many different types of bodies in the resurrection. And just as there's different, uh, different types of seeds and different types of animals and different glories of stars, there are different glories of resurrection. So just as, you know, just as a corn seed... Uh, is different from a carrot seed, which is different from a, a wheat seed. And just as the body of a, of a dog is different from the body of a fish, which is different from the body of a robin, just as there's differences among those, there are differences among resurrected bodies, which is an interesting concept and certainly one that I don't think we can fully appreciate now. But the, importance, but the important idea is that when we're resurrected, we will not all be the same. And what will be the difference maker? It will be our relationship with Jesus Christ. It will be the extent to which we have accepted him as our Savior and put our faith, put our trust in him and allow the power of his atonement to change us, to become more like him. Verses 42 through 44 so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So the resurrection takes us from corruption, dishonor, and weakness, and the world, the things of this world, to incorruption, glory, power, and the spirit. And what I take away from this is the resurrection is powerful. There's a lot that we don't understand about it. How God is able to take my corrupt, dishonorable, weak, and worldly body that I currently have now, and he's able to change that to an incorruptible, a glorious, and a powerful, and a spiritual body is something I do not fully appreciate. But at the same time, it is something that I greatly look forward to. And I am grateful for Christ and His power for the resurrection that He opened up, that He conquered death and opened the bands of death, making it possible for all of us to become incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. And it is only through Jesus Christ that those things are possible because He is the only one with the power to overcome that final enemy, to overcome death. And he ends this beautiful chapter with these incredible verses, 51 through 57. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, He's saying we're not all just going to rot in our graves, but we are all going to be resurrected. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, for this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin, as he teaches in verse 56. Death wouldn't be so terrible if it wasn't for the fact that we all sin. And because we all sin, death means our separation from God will be permanent unless we have help from someone else. And that someone else is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who helps us overcome sin, who helps us put down death so that we can return to God's presence, so that we can be with our loved ones again, so that we can have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the victory of the resurrection, the victory of being with those that we love again. Again, I love this chapter, and it has become so real to me, so personal to me within the past few months, having lost both of my parents. I'm sure many of you have, probably almost all of you, have endured some painful loss in your life. Just think about how incredible it is to know, to have that certainty, to be able to prophesy that everything will work out okay, 
that death will be overcome and that we will be with our loved ones again and that we will be able to return to our Father. What greater prophecy could there be than our knowledge, than the peace that comes from knowing that these things are true? Paul's final chapter to the Corinthians, chapter 16, like many of the last chapters of his books, he just says farewell to those that, uh, that, he, that he loves, um, gives a quick salutation to them. Verses 13 and 14, though. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, or in other words, act, be courageous, act like men, be strong. Let your things, let all your things be done with charity. What an appropriate ending. Verse 13, he tells us, you know, it's kind of he's coming down hard. Watch ye, stand fast, be courageous, be strong. And then in the next verse, and everything you do, do it with charity. And I hope that's what we'll each follow Paul's admonition here, because I think those verses really nicely sum up his whole letter to the Corinthians. Be strong in the faith of Christ. Be courageous. Act upon your faith. Focus upon Jesus Christ. Don't go off into the weeds. Don't lose sight of that greatest doctrine, that greatest teaching, resurrection. The knowledge that we have that we will all overcome death through the power of Jesus Christ. And in everything you do, have charity. Have concern for others, love others, put their needs above yours, knowing that Christ will fulfill all of our needs if we have faith in him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.